Morning, church. How are you today? Look at this. My name's Darren. I'm one of the shepherds on staff. If you're, uh, if you're a guest with us uh, or you're visiting or, you know, from the neighborhood or whatever, welcome. We, we want you to feel at home and want you to, you know, feel like this is a place you could call family yourself. And for those of you who are family, it's nice to see you again. I was gone last week in Phoenix, but it's nice to be back. Uh, we are continuing our study in the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to John chapter 16. And uh, we're picking up kind of in the middle where we left off last week. When I, was a, uh, when I was a kid, I was terrified to stay home by myself. And in fact, I'm still a little terrified to stay home by myself. Uh, but I, I used to hate it when my parents would go out someplace if they had a, like a dinner thing or whatever. I, like it, I was just always nervous that I was going to like look through the plate glass window on the back of our house and there was going to be like a killer in the backyard, you know, or somebody would sneak in. I was just always, and I didn't watch scary movies or anything. It was just, I was just a cow. I didn't go down a slide till I was like eight years old. I was a cowardly kid. But I hated being at home by myself because I just was nervous that things would happen out of my control. And so I had this system where when my parents left, and I would beg them not to go anywhere, but when they insisted on leaving me by myself, I would work my way systematically from the back of the house to the front, like checking in closets, and then once I knew there wasn't like a guy with a knife in there, then I would close the closet and turn off the light, and then back out through the room and make sure nobody, and then turn off the light and close the door and back my way out so that at the end, I was hunkered down in like one room of the house with the light on, and I knew if I heard a door creak or I saw a light go on, it was time for me to die, so I was just always ready for it. And I was just always really scared. And so it's been, um, by the way, I still do that. I still do that thing with the doors now, 45 years old. I still, when I'm by myself, I still kind of make sure the doors are shut. It's fine. If you want to really terrify me, break into my house. That'll be it. Uh, But it's really weird. Now I've got, I've got kids and I sort of expected that my kids would be just as chicken as me. And uh, what's been really weird, my, my 12 year old son, Will, uh, in the last couple of years has kind of gotten into this thing where he'll go, you know, dad. I really think you should take mom out to dinner. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, or may, you know, you could go out to dinner and go to a movie if you want. You'll be gone for hours. That'd be fine. You know, maybe you guys go see some friends. He's like, don't you think it's worth it for your marriage? You know, I'm like, what's going on? What are you talking about? You know, and it's like, he's always scheming to see if he can get us out of the house. And it's so foreign to me because I never wanted to be alone that I, I kind of, I don't get why he's not scared. So I've started saying to him, like, aren't you nervous there's somebody in the closet that will kill you? You know, like, aren't you worried about that at all? And he's like, not really. What time can you go? You know? And I, and I realized that what's happening in his head is that if he can get us out of the house, then he can have the house to himself and he can play video games until all hours of the night. You know, like if I'm there, he has to go to bed or we can't play video games, you know, hours on end. But if I'm gone, then he can kind of do the Xbox thing for as long as he wants. He'll be mad that I said Xbox, PlayStation. Sorry. He'll, he will, he can play PlayStation as long as he wants. And, uh, and so he's, it's to his advantage. He has discovered it is to his advantage that we go away, right? In John chapter 16, and actually in the chapters leading up to that, we've been talking over the last many weeks about the fact that from 13 on, Jesus is having sort of an intimate conversation with his disciples. It's a very personal conversation in which he is preparing them for his death, for the fact that he will depart and return to the Father. Not only is uh, he not going to set up an earthly kingdom where he's going to chase the Romans out of occupying Israel, he's not going to necessarily set up you know, on David's throne the way the Jewish people thought he would. He's been sort of preparing them for the fact that the shepherd is about to be struck and the sheep will scatter. 
And so he's been talking to them over the last couple of chapters as we've worked our way through it, preparing their hearts for what their role will be after he leaves, but also stating to them in no uncertain terms that he will be killed, that he's going to leave them, that the Holy Spirit's going to come. He talks about it in John 14. And by the time he gets to John 16, now we've seen uh, at the end of 15 and in 16, he's gone so far as to not only say, I'm going to leave, Things are going to be different than you expect. I'm going to go someplace where you can't follow me. Now he's gone so far to say not only are they going to kill me, they're going to kill you. Because you're my disciples, because you're following me, because you're doing the same things I did, they're not just going to take me out, they're going to take you out. And when they take you out, they're going to think they're doing God a favor when they do it. And as a result, I mean, the the disciples have essentially had the rug pulled out from every expectation they had. Everything they thought that it was going to be like to walk with the Messiah and to be a disciple of the Messiah and to follow this Jesus, all of that has come unhinged because now he's not even sticking around. Now he's leaving. Apparently he's going to die. He's going someplace they, don't, they can't follow him immediately, right? The world has rejected him, and now they're hearing the world's going to reject them. And as a result, their hearts are filled with sorrow. Jesus has told them not to be troubled, to not let their hearts be troubled, and yet in this particular instance, after sort of trying to assimilate all this information, they're very sorrowful. So much so that Jesus looks at them and he says, I'm telling you that I'm going away, and you're not even asking me any questions about that. This isn't like you, right? In John 13, we saw Thomas say, we don't know where you're going, and we don't know the way. In John 14, we saw Peter say, where are you going? Prior to this, they've asked some questions But now in John 16, Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's telling them that they are going to be persecuted and nobody's even sort of digging a little bit deeper to find out exactly what that means or why he's not going to be with them. And he looks at them here in verses 5 and following and he says, I've just said all these things to you. Look at verse 5, it says, but now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asks me where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. I love the tenderness of Jesus in this. I love the fact that Jesus isn't just declaring information and expecting them to deal with it, but that dynamically and moment by moment, he's actually discerning the temperature of the hearts of his guys. That he's sitting with his disciples and he actually, he sort of reads the scenario and recognizes that their hearts are so filled with sorrow, there's even things he can't share with them. He says in verse 12, which we'll get to in a minute, he says, there's more stuff I need to tell you, but I I can't tell it to you right now because of the heaviness of your heart. I love that Jesus is like this, that he truly is a shepherd, that he truly sees them and understands the condition of their heart and cares enough about them to even sort of make adjustments on the fly, to speak to exactly what's going on inside them. I take comfort from that because this is the very same Jesus who is shepherding me today. This is the same Jesus that looks into my heart today in the moments where I'm filled with sorrow or in the moments where I have doubt or in the moments where I'm heavy hearted and he still understands who we are, and he cares about us. Jesus says, I have some things I want to tell you. There's more I want to articulate, but you're so filled with sorrow, you're not even asking me any questions. And so Jesus here says something that at first sort of sounds outlandish in verse number seven. In John 16, verse number seven, he says something that sounds astounding. He says this, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I did not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus says, I know you're feeling heavy hearted that I've told you I'm going to go away and that you're going to be persecuted. But the reality is, it's actually a really good thing. It's actually to your advantage. It's advantageous that I go because if I go, I will send the helper. Now in 14, we've already looked at the idea of this paraclete, the Holy Spirit, this helper, this advocate that will come. 
And the, the Holy Spirit, as we understand both in that text and this one, just, just for clarity, in case you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, the Holy Spirit is not a cosmic force. He's not sort of an ambiguous, sort of amorphous, uh, spiritual thing that floats in the universe and sometimes drops in and out. No, the Holy Spirit is a he. If you have your journal this morning, you can circle the way in which Jesus uses a personal pronoun to describe God and the Holy Spirit. Fully God, fully part of the Trinity. In fact, John 16 is a great Trinitarian passage. We see Jesus talking about his role. We see him talking about the role of the Holy Spirit. And we see him talking about the role of the Father all in one place. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is active. And here Jesus says, it's actually, as much as your hearts are heavy, it's actually to your advantage that I go away, because if I go away, I will send the helper to you. And it's only if I go away that the helper will come. Now that, that should probably stir up a couple of questions, right? If you're listening to that, you're like, well, why is that advantageous? It's so much better to have Jesus right here in the room. with. I mean, many of you probably have had moments, if you're a Christian, you've had moments where you've thought, man, I just really wish Jesus was sitting here in the car with me and I could have a conversation with him physically like the disciples were able to do. And now Jesus is saying, what's well, actually better for you to have the Holy Spirit than to have me in the room. Well, well part of that has to do with the, the nature of the incarnation, the nature of the incarnation is such that, that God comes in a body and he's in a physical location, right? He's in a physical place. He cannot be both in Jerusalem and in Galilee at the same time. He cannot speak to the people on the hillside and the people by the lake at the same time. He is sort of limited by the incarnation, by his physical nature. I remember when, uh, when Spotify first came out, and I, I'm a big CD collector, you know, and I was like very reluctant to stop buying CDs. I wanted to own the CD and have the music in my, you know, in my closet. I wanted to own that thing, right? And then you start to understand that like with a streaming service like Spotify, and I'm not pitching that to you, although it has changed my life. Uh, with a streaming service like Spotify, yeah, you don't own any of that, but all of a sudden you have access all the time wherever you're at, in your car, in your office, on your phone, on your iPad, on your computer, to every song that's ever been written ever, and you start to think, well, I was carrying around 50 CDs in my car, and that was cool, but what if I could carry around every song all the time wherever I'm at? That's even better. The, the reality of the Holy Spirit as we saw in 14, is that he is with us and in us all and will be in us all forever. The permanence and the pervasiveness of the presence of the Holy Spirit in all of us at the same time, in one sense, shows why it's advantageous for the Spirit to come. Because his presence is different than the physical presence of Jesus. But there's a greater thing that Jesus is saying here. See, because Jesus' ministry and his work on earth wasn't just contained to coming and taking the sin of the world upon himself and dying on the cross and then rising from the dead. That isn't his completed work. His completed work includes the ascension, returning to the right hand of the Father in glory that the world would see that he isn't just a man who died and was raised, but that he is truly the eternal God, that he returns to the right hand of the Father and that he continues his work in that spot. See, this isn't Jesus sort of tagging the Holy Spirit and saying, okay, I've worked really hard for three years here. I've done a lot of ministry. I did my part. I'm going to go to the cross and die. I'm going to rise from the dead. And then I'm going to take a long vacation, right? I'm going to take a break because I'm going to be very tired. And now the Holy Spirit, who, who knows what he's been doing, now he's going to have to start working while I go to the Bahamas, right? That's not what Jesus is saying. The Holy Spirit and the Father and Jesus all work all the time together. 
This isn't the Holy Spirit gearing up to start working. It's a continuation of the Holy Spirit's work, but it's in conjunction with the mediation of the Lord Jesus at the right hand. Jesus continues to work on our behalf in a different way, and the Holy Spirit comes to us to guide us, as it says in the text, into all the truth. Well, the idea of all the truth is the revelation of Jesus in both his incarnation, in his substitutionary death and atonement, in his resurrection, in his ascension, and in his ongoing mediation. That is the whole revealed truth of the Lord Jesus. That's why uh, in Hebrews chapter 7, when we studied Hebrews, I'll just read you a couple of these to remind you. In Hebrews 7, in verse 25, it says, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's talking about Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, it says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Romans chapter 8, verse 34, Paul says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That is the whole truth that the Spirit of God leads us into. In fact, in John chapter 16, verses 12 and following, when Jesus says the Holy Spirit will come, this Holy Spirit for you, it's advantageous because he will come and he will guide you. He will guide you into all the truth. Well, the very presence of Hebrews chapter 7 and the very presence of Hebrews chapter 9, the very presence of Romans chapter 8, where it talks about the ongoing work of Jesus as a mediator and intercessor for us, is proof of what Jesus is saying here in John 16. He's saying, there are things I want to tell you about who I am, things I want to tell you about my redemptive work, things I want to tell you about the kingdom of God, but your hearts are so full of sorrow, I can't even explain the whole thing to you right now. I can't talk to you about the fact that I'm going to return to the Father and I'm going to intercede on your behalf and that all men will be able to come to God because I will mediate this new covenant. I can't lay all that out for you right now because you couldn't handle it, but the Spirit, the Helper, this Advocate will come and He will guide you into all the truth. Let's look at it here in John 16, 12. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Well, the things that are to come include the continuation of the revealed scripture. Books like Hebrews, books like Romans, the full testimony of the witness of God's word. Jesus says, I can't reveal it all to you now because you couldn't bear it, but my spirit will come and he will lead you into the whole of this story, into the whole of this truth. He says, he will, uh, he will not speak to you on his own authority, verse 13, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Look at how cool this is, right? Jesus is saying, all that the Father has is mine, and the Holy Spirit will hear everything that is mine, understand everything that is mine, the total picture of who I am, and he will declare it to you. So not only do we have this great sort of picture of the work of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit working together to reveal the truth, but what I love about this is that not only is he telling us something about the way the Trinity works, you and I are in the very same sentences, right? 
That it isn't just the Father revealing things to the Spirit about the Son to be declared, but it's also including us. We are in the very same breath, in the very same sentence Jesus is declaring, hey, the the Father will reveal to the Spirit, the Spirit will declare the truth about me to you. I love the fact that we, created beings, made in his image, are being included in this ongoing Trinitarian work. That we're not equal with the Trinity, but we are participants in what the Trinity is doing. He says, I will send this spirit to you and he will guide you into all the truth. And that's important. He doesn't say, I will guide you into some truth, or I will guide you into religious truth, or I will guide you into, you know, the truth for you. Which is interesting because we live in a world in which we've sort of taken the truth and we've made it subjective, haven't we? We live in a world where it's very common to hear someone say, well, I'm just living my truth or you just need to live your truth. I was saying in the last service, I went to a couple of different graduation ceremonies at the end of the school year in May and June. And every time you hear a graduation speech, it feels like there's at least a point where somebody goes, hey, I just want to say to my fellow classmates of 2019, go out there and live your truth. And we sort of just come to sort of hear that as common language. But the idea of us having our own individual truth is the very thing that leads the world to a situation in which they do not believe in Jesus. And their righteousness is false righteousness. And their judgment is off and they will ultimately be condemned because they are aligned with the prince of this age. And I don't want to make this too heavy. But the reality here is that when everybody has their own truth, there is no truth. The racists out there would say they have their own truth, and the weapons manufacturers would say they have their own truth, and the haters and the career politicians, they all would say they have their own truth, but what we are looking for and what we want to be guided by is not the individual truths of created beings, but the absolute truth of the creator, and that is our anchor. So Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, you're heavy hearted because they will persecute you, Thinking they're operating in the truth, believing that what they're doing is righteous, they will kill you and they will call you the devil and they will hate you. But the reality is that the helper will come and he will reveal real truth. He will guide you into truth. Let me tell you, my friends, truth can be found. And it isn't subjective, it isn't up to our whims and our ideals. The truth is Christ, has been revealed in the scripture by the Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us. Jesus says, I want you to understand it's advantageous for you that the Spirit comes because he will be with you always and he will guide you into all the truth. He won't say anything on his own behalf, but he will take what has been revealed about me by the Father and he will declare it to you. You see, because what Jesus is describing, and we'll back up to this in just a second, he's describing the way in which the world is convicted of the fact that their truth is not truth at all. And the way in which the world is convicted of the fact that their truth is not truth at all is not by the Holy Spirit's work in the world. So I want to back up just for a second and I'll clarify what I'm saying before you freak out and call me a heretic. He says here in John 16, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. I want you to stop just for a second as you're thinking this this, this passage through and answer the question, who does the Holy Spirit come to? The Holy Spirit comes to us. He says, if I go away, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. Who's he talking to? He's talking to disciples. He's talking to the church. In that immediate context, he's talking to the apostles. He says, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. He does not say in this text, nor does he say anywhere else, I will send the Holy Spirit to the world. 
The Holy Spirit does not go to the world. The Holy Spirit does not whisper into the hearts of the world. I think sometimes as, as Christians even we're like, oh, God, just send your Holy Spirit and you know, convict the world of all of their sin, right? I'll tell you, according to the text, that's not the way the process works. The way the process works is that the Holy Spirit comes to us and it is through his transformation of us, it is through his guiding of us into all the truth that the world is convicted. The conviction of the world, the conviction of other people with regard to sin and righteousness and judgment doesn't happen because the Spirit sort of speaks directly to them, but rather the Spirit moves in us to convict the world. He says in 7, I will send the Spirit to you. I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Three categories here. We'll look at them briefly. Sin, first of all, he says in in verse 8, he says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. I think sometimes when we think about sin, we just think of it as doing bad things, right? And sin is sort of one of those churchy words that if somebody hasn't defined it for you, it just feels kind of ambiguous. And you go, well, I... I think we're talking about bank robbery and murder and all those bad, those are all sins. And it's good that the Holy Spirit's going to convict the world not to do those bad things. Listen, sin is, is deeper and wider and more broad than just, just moral bad behavior, right? Immoral bad behavior. Remember a long time ago, and actually if you've been around for a while, you've heard me say it before, but each of us were created with a purpose. The understanding of sin is rooted in our purpose, You and I weren't built accidentally. We weren't created by God on a whim. We weren't part of a big bang. God created us with a purpose and an objective. And the purpose of mankind, all of us, is to glorify him, to worship him. In our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds, the things we do, and even in our attitudes, we can glorify God. We were built to glorify him. The Bible describes sin not just as bank robbery, although that's a sin, or not just as murder or whatever. Those things are sin. But sin is any thought or word or deed or attitude that fails to live up to the purpose for which we were created. Anytime I glorify myself or anytime I glorify my favorite sports team or anytime I glorify money or sex or power or anything other than God, I am using this worshiping life for something other than it was built. And the Bible defines that as sin. It's more complicated than bank robbery and murder. It's every thought and word and deed and attitude that is not taken captive for the glory of God. And what he says here, what Jesus says, is the Spirit of God will come to you, my disciples, will come to you, and through you he will convict the world of sin because they do not believe. You see, at the root of every sin, every immoral activity, every thought, word, deed, or attitude that doesn't glorify God, at the root of that is unbelief. I think sometimes we focus our efforts as a church or as Christians, we focus our efforts on trying to get our friends and neighbors to just do good, to just be good, right? To say, to talk nicer and don't use curse words and don't, you know, what we, and we're, we're just trying to adjust their moral behavior. Let me tell you, that's not even possible. It is not possible for someone who does not believe in Christ to overarching, in an overarching way, to glorify God in their life. What people need is not moral correction. What people need is to know Jesus, to believe in Jesus. To believe in Jesus will transform their thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes by the power of his spirit. But apart from believing in him, all of our work to just try and curb people's bad attitudes or people's bad behavior is a waste of time. Our goal, as the spirit comes to us, is to make manifest what a life of faith looks like, a life of faithfulness, the fruit of the spirit, love and joy and peace and patience. Galatians chapter five, right? In Galatians 5, talking about what the Spirit does in us, 
It says the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This fruit is made manifest when we belong to Jesus. And so here Jesus is saying, I want you to take comfort. It's to your advantage that I go away. The Holy Spirit will come and he will guide you into all the truth. He will guide you into the truth of what real belief is. And when you put on that belief, you will reveal Christ in such a way that the world will be convinced or convicted or reproved or corrected about their sin, about their unbelief. Not only that, he says the world will be convicted about righteousness, which feels a little funny. We get the idea of conviction about sin, but convicted about righteousness is a weird one, right? Because they don't have any righteousness. Well, that's exactly the point. You see, there were all kinds of people doing things that looked righteous. Even in Galatia, or excuse me, in John 16, 2, we read it a minute ago. In John 16, 2, he talks about the persecution the disciples were face. And he says this, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. The Holy Spirit will come to us and will convict the world regarding righteousness. What's that conviction? The conviction is that their righteousness is not righteousness at all. That the good deeds they do for themselves or the good deeds they do for the perception of others or the good deeds they do out of guilt or obligation or the good deeds they do that are actually driven by selfish, sinful motives are not good deeds. He says, these are people who will put you out of the synagogues and kill you believing that they're doing God's work. Well, that's a false righteousness. So the Holy Spirit comes to us and guides us into the truth so that true righteousness is put on display, so that the fruit of the Spirit is put on display in us. We've talked before in here about the fact that the fruit of the Spirit is not for our consumption, right? When the fruit of the Spirit is made manifest on our branches, it's not so that I can enjoy love and peace and patience. When the fruit of the Spirit is made manifest by the work of the Spirit in me, that is for the consumption of my friends and neighbors, my coworkers. It's it's for the consumption of the world who does not know true righteousness, who has not seen it and tasted it. And so that fruit is produced, and what does it do? This work of the Spirit through us It convicts, it rebukes, it reproves a world that does not know true righteousness. He says the Spirit will come to us and will convict the world regarding sin, regarding righteousness, because Jesus is going to the Father and we will see him no more. How does the world see Jesus today? How does the world see Jesus today? You probably know the answer to this already. It's it's kind of Sunday school-y. But we reveal Christ if the world is to see Jesus, they see Jesus in us. They see Jesus through us. We're gonna, we're gonna start a series in two weeks. We're gonna take a little break from John and on, on August 18th for the next five Sundays, we're gonna walk through some new kind of vision stuff. And the vision stuff is all centered around the idea of Christ revealed. Christ revealed to us so that Christ can be revealed in us and then Christ will be revealed by us. The Holy Spirit comes, by the way, if you, if you can at all avoid it, I would say please do not miss a Sunday between, uh, between August 18th and like September or whatever, 22nd. If you can catch all those, that'd be rad. It's, fa- it's a family, it's a really important for our family. Um, Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit will come, will guide you into truth and that will convict the world of sin and righteousness because they won't see me, you won't see me, they will see you. The world sees Christ when we reveal him, when we make him known. And then lastly, he says the Holy Spirit will convict the world when he comes to us, he will convict the world regarding judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. What's he talking about, the ruler of this world? He's talking about Satan, he's talking about our enemy. 
And I want you to notice in the text that Jesus doesn't say he will be judged or that if things go the way we're planning, hopefully Satan will lose and God will win. I think sometimes because we've watched Star Wars and we've watched Harry Potter and we watch all these things, we start to feel like, oh, we're in the midst of this like cosmic struggle. And if I don't go to church and if I don't put enough money in the offering plate, if I don't do good deeds, then maybe Jesus loses, Ooh, you know? It's a, it's a false idea. Listen, what Jesus is saying and what he's already said is that Satan is defeated. The prince of this world is judged. You and I, when the Spirit comes to guide us into truth, part of that truth is that the victory is accomplished. In the cross and the resurrection, in the ascension, and in Jesus' ongoing mediation on our behalf, the, the enemy is defeated, and we have the ability to live in the confidence of that finished work. But there is a whole world that's sort of living in this idea that like, well, let's see how it's going to go. Let's see how things are going to turn out. If I can just live the way I want to live and nobody knows it, if I can just live the way I want to live and I don't hurt anybody else, if I can just live the way I want to live and and I've gotten permission from others so they've sort of conceded that it's all right, then I should be able to do whatever I want to do. And Jesus says, no, when the Spirit of God comes to my people, it will guide them into all the truth. He will guide them into all the truth. And as a result, the world will be convicted regarding judgment because the spirit of this world, not, excuse me, not the spirit, the ruler of this world, is judged. We saw that earlier in John chapter 12. In John 12, 31, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. In John eight forty two, remember when he's talking to the Jewish leaders, he says, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. You see, we live in a generation and in a world where there are many people who are following in allegiance to the prince of this world. They're following in allegiance to Satan and they're sort, of, they're, they're sort of feeling like it's them living their own truth. They're sort of feeling like it's them just living in freedom and autonomy but the reality is that they're following a path that leads to destruction and that verdict is already sealed. If they're living in allegiance and alignment with the prince of this world, Satan is already judged and that judgment then falls on us as well. Any who are not believers in Christ are judged and in fact, apart from Christ, we were all judged. The guilty verdict has already been made. The reason we have resurrection life is because our guilty verdict was placed on him. It's not that we're not guilty. It's that our price has been paid for by the work of Christ. So Jesus says, I know you're heavy hearted and I know you're sorrowful because of all the things you've heard because these people will be living their truth and they're gonna hurt you and they're gonna gonna lie about you and they're gonna throw you in jail. They're gonna murder you the way they're gonna kill me and I'm going but I want you to understand that it's actually to your advantage that I go because if I go, the helper will come. The Holy Spirit will come and he will guide you into all the truth. Even things I can't tell you now because your hearts are too heavy, he will guide you into the full revelation of who I am and when he does that, your lives will manifest me in such a way that the world will be convicted. The Holy Spirit will come to you and convict the world. How is the world convicted? It's convicted when we put Christ on. 
when we live in faith, when we live in his righteousness, when we live in a confident expectation of the fact that the story is already concluded, then we give the world an opportunity to taste this fruit of the spirit that they can't find anywhere else and they are convicted of their own sin. They are convicted of their false righteousness. They are convicted and convinced. They are affirmed in the idea that Satan is judged and there is no value in being aligned with him. We see a perfect example of this happen in Acts chapter two on Pentecost. When Peter preaches this message, and I I won't read you the whole thing for the sake of time this morning, but in, in Acts chapter two, Peter says this, starting in verse 22. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Further down in 32, Peter says, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter declares the message that Jesus was sent by God as part of God's providence to come and take the sin of the world, the Messiah, and that he died at the hands of wicked men. And he was raised from the dead because death could not hold him. And now he has ascended to the right hand of the Father where he intercedes on our behalf. This is the man, Peter says, that was crucified on that cross and their response in verse 37, it says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What's happening there? Is that that just Peter preaching a great message? He spent a lot of time in his hotel room the night before this just making sure he got every sentence right. That's not what this is. What's happening in Acts 2? I'll tell you what's happening. The spirit of truth has come and guided Peter into all truth. And as a result, he's revealed the whole testimony of who Christ is. And as Peter puts that on, both in his words and in his actions, in the power of the Holy Spirit, these men who are listening to this message are cut to the heart. What's happening to them? They are convicted. They say, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, the answer, as the Holy Spirit comes to us and guides us into the truth, as we reveal Christ in our thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes, the world in which we live will be convicted of their false righteousness, of their unbelief, of their alignment with the prince of this world who is judged already. And they will be cut to the heart And our response to them is not, hey, try and live a happier life or try not to do bad things or try not to say bad words or maybe think about coming to church more. No, the call for us is to look at people and say, believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus. If if we're living a life to just represent sort of a moral kind of behavior, we're not following the Holy Spirit into all truth. To follow the Holy Spirit into all truth is to make Jesus revealed in us and by us that the Holy Spirit would convict the world by coming to us. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would make us as a family take this so serious. I talk to so many people who, who are desperate to hear your voice, who say, well, I don't ever hear God talk to me. I don't ever hear this or that. God, would, we, would you give us a hunger and a passion 
to be guided by your spirit into all the truth. That we would put you on, that we would live like Christ, that we would speak like Christ, that we would declare this truth that is not subjective but is absolute. And that as a result of your spirit coming to us and guiding us and revealing you to us, our neighbors and friends, those we desperately love, would be convicted by your spirit, not because we gave a great speech, but because you were moving through us to them. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.